Hi, Mas. It's good to be here with you guys. Um, Count it a blessing uh, to be here with you and joining in worship of the Lord. Uh, at this time, we'd like to go ahead and dismiss our children's uh, elementary age children to their classrooms so they may get slowly uh, make their way to their Sunday school classes. Last week I was not doing too well uh, health-wise, and I'm getting a little bit better, but I still have a little bit of a remnant. So, um, again, I apologize. I hope I don't start coughing or anything like that in the middle of the message. All right? Um, As mentioned in the announcements, uh, today is our monthly potluck, and so uh, just an opportunity for fellowship is really what it is. Uh, I hope you all can make it and and join together in breaking bread uh, with the church body. You know, the Lord, in spite of my constant fears, uh, to the contrary, always provides enough for all to partake. You know, like every month I'm like, there's not enough food, there's not enough food. And uh, people are like, should we go get something, should we go get something? I'm like, I don't know, I don't know. And then there's enough food for everybody, you know, and it works out. And You'd think I'd learn, but... I'm not too smart sometimes. <laughs> uh, you know, if you forgot to bring something, uh, but want to hang out and be a part, we'd love to have you just be a part. The, bringing food is not a prerequisite to hang out and have fellowship and, and partake of the food with us. Uh, if you do want to go around and grab something real quick, bring it back, you feel free to do so. We usually kick things off a little after 12 o'clock. Uh, so should be a good time. Uh, just to, you know, you know, the heart behind it is just to create an atmosphere uh, for the body to get together with one another, to encourage one another, to have some strike up some conversations and uh, build on our relationships and just edify one another. And so uh, hopefully you guys can make plans to be with us uh, and hang out. Okay? All right. Today we will be partaking of communion, uh, as is our practice uh, on the first Sunday of the month. And so uh, we'll be doing uh, so at the conclusion of our time in the Word uh, this morning as well. So, all right. As we've been uh, going systematically through the book of Matthew, uh, verse by verse, chapter by cha- chapter, uh, the narrative has been building towards uh, this moment that we will be looking at today. Uh, although it will uh, take us a few weeks uh, to cover the crucifixion and the events uh, surrounding it, today we will begin by trying to understand and grasp The suffering that our Savior endured on uh, this fateful day. You know, I do want to, as I mentioned last week, forewarn you uh, all that some of the details we will be covering today are are a bit uh, gruesome. And if you allow yourself uh, to visualize uh, the broken body of our Savior, um, I imagine it will be uh, disturbing for some. Don't do that. uh, my goal is not to create an, an over-sensualized representation of the suffering of Jesus Christ. I really just want to try and create uh, in you an, any, uh, an accurate portrayal of what Jesus Christ went through. We're not, I'm not trying to, to garnish emotional responses. You know, that's not the goal today. Uh, the goal is to, to understand uh, so that we might get a, a glimpse that we could try to understand uh, the great pain and the suffering which he endured for us. Uh, the cross is real. Okay? Uh, the pain and suffering, uh, the torture experienced by those who uh, have been crucified was very real, very real to them. Um, and although today we, we champion the cross and, and use it to identify us with Christ, Uh, Make no mistake about it, the cross was an instrument of extreme pain. It was an instrument used in the execution of the worst criminals. Unlike uh, many of today's modern civilizations that use the death penalty, the goal of the death penalty back then was not just to end a life, but to cause as much pain and suffering as humanly possible. Today's forms of, of, of execution are geared towards, uh, geared towards trying to be as humane as possible, uh, as quick as possible, and as painless as possible. And, and such was not the case. Uh, such was not the case for the Romans who mastered crucifixion as their main method of execution. It was meant to be extremely painful, 
It could last for days, depending on how they wanted to, uh, to allow it. They could allow it to last longer. They kind of had mastered it in such a way that they could prolong it longer or make it stop shorter. They, they could make it last as long as they wanted, uh, for, for the most part. Uh, and it was anything but humane. And, um, you know, last week we, we looked at how Pontius Pilate, he tried to free himself of the responsibility of having to deal with Jesus Christ. He knew that Jesus was an innocent man, but he would not bring himself to go against the demands of the crowd that was stirred up by these religious leaders who sought Jesus' death. He tried to force their hand by offering uh, to release Jesus or a notorious murderer named Barabbas. He thought for sure they would choose Jesus. But Pontius Pilate, he underestimated the hatred and the determination that filled the chief priest and the elders' hearts. Amazingly, they selected to rather have a murderer and an insurrectionist let loose among the multitudes than to have Jesus set free. And we left off in verse 26 last week, and actually that's where we're going to read from again to start off our text. We kind of did 26 last week just to see the conclusion of Barabbas, but it also started the the mentioning of the scourging. And so we're going to pick up there in verse 26 today. And so uh, turn with me now, if you haven't already, uh, to the 27th chapter of the book of Matthew. Today uh, we are going to be covering uh, verses 26 through 37. And uh, um, hopefully we'll be... uh, A time where the Lord speaks to our hearts. Amen. Will you stand as uh, we read God's word this morning? Matthew chapter 27. Again, I'll start in verse 26 and we're going to read through verse 37. 26 says, Then he released Barabbas, speaking of Pontius Pilate, he released Barabbas to them, and when he had scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole garrison around him. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. When they had twisted a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand. And they bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And then they spat on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they took the robe off him, put his own clothes on him, and led him away to be crucified. Verse 32. Now as they came out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name, him they compelled to bear his cross. And when they had come to a place called Golgotha, that is to say, place of a skull, they gave him sour wine mingled with gall to drink, but when he had tasted it, he would not drink. Then they crucified him and divided his garments, casting lots, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet. They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Sitting down, they kept watch over him there, and they put up over his head the accusation written against him. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Let's pray. Father, I pray uh, that as we gather here in this place this morning, Lord, that our hearts and our minds uh, and our ears would be open and ready to receive all that you have for us. Lord, I know that we each are in different places in our walk with you. Some have been walking with you for many years, and some of you, some of us have been walking uh, with you uh, for a shorter times. And maybe there's some here that aren't walking with you. Lord, I pray that you'd speak to every heart here this morning. And Lord, I pray that you would uh, give to us an, an anticipation. Lord, give to us an expectation that you are going to speak to us. And Father, I do hope and pray, Lord, I I don't want to over-sensualize things, but I do want to hope and pray that you would touch our hearts today. And that we would be mindful of the sacrifice that you uh, gave for us because of your great love for us. 
And Lord, that we would uh, respond uh, with lives of worship and lives of, uh, that are surrendered to you. And so, Father, as part of that surrender, as part of that worship, Lord, we ask that you just work in our hearts here this morning. Lead us through your word. We thank you for it. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may have a seat. In verse 26, we uh, re-enter the scene this morning uh, in Jerusalem uh, on the day of Passover where Pontius Pilate had uh, just decided to release Barabbas and sentence Jesus to scourging and crucifixion. It's still relatively early on in the day. Okay? Uh, we don't have an exact time frame, uh, but outside of it's sometime after sunrise, which would have been around 6 o'clock in the morning. Okay? And sometime before the third hour, which would be 9 o'clock in the morning. So sometime between 6 and 9 uh, in the morning happening. Verse 26 speaks very matter-of-fact regarding the scourging that took place. It doesn't go into great detail of what that means. But I want to take some time today to look at what exactly was a scourging. Okay? I think for the writers in the New Testament, uh, they speak of things that are so matter-of-fact because everybody knew what that was. Okay? Everybody knew what scourging was. And everybody knew what crucifixion was. And they knew the, the pains and, the, and the, the, the horror of them. But for us, we, we were you know, a couple thousand years removed from this time. And so uh, it's good to know what they're speaking of. Okay? Scourging was a Roman punishment that would be used as a means of discipline, okay? but it was also used as a means of interrogation. In the book of Acts, Paul was seized by an angry mob in the temple that stirred up quite a commotion, and word got to, word got to the Roman commander of the garrison, and he went out with several troops, and he took Paul and bound him with chains. You guys may be familiar uh, with this portion of Scripture. It's in Acts chapter 22. And in order to find out what was going on and to find out why the people were attacking Paul, he ordered that Paul be examined under scourging. Acts chapter 22, verses 24 and 25. Paul, however, he was able to escape the scourging because he was a Roman citizen. He asked the soldier that to beat him if it was lawful for him to beat a Roman citizen and an uncondemned man. Romans were not to be scourged unless a proper trial had been given to them. A soldier who illegally scourged a Roman citizen would end up having to suffer the same fate. And so the soldier didn't want anything to do with scourging Paul. But the thought of the matter was scourging was used as a form of interrogation to find out information, to uh, uh, propel confessions. They would start to scourge someone in hopes that they would uh, confess to their wrongdoings or explain or Uh, give the truth that they feel is being held from them. Scourging was done with a small handled whip-like instrument to which one or more leather cords or thongs were attached. The Roman whip was called a flagrum. The flagrum's leather thongs, they would be weighted down with pieces of lead at the end, and they would be embedded uh, within them small sharp pieces of glass or sharp uh, pieces of bone, sheep bone uh, most often. To have small nails attached to the end of the tips to serve as flesh hooks that would sink into the flesh of the person being beaten. I do have a couple pictures of of modern day replications of what we believe the flagrum to have looked like. Uh, Joseph, you put those up there? So these are four different uh, versions of what uh, a flag, Roman flagrum would look like. Um, <coughs> excuse me. Some of them have uh, different numbers of thongs on them, but they all have the same type, of, same purpose. Each one has a lead uh, tip at the bottom there uh, with nails that are in it. And uh, some of them, this is a, you know, a three, a six, a nine, and a twelve thong, thronged 
uh, flagrum here. Uh, sometimes the nine thronged flagrum was uh, called the cat of nine tails, okay? uh, referred to as a cat of nine tails, but it really was a flagrum. Uh, it was not necessarily uh, the same exact thing as a cat of nine tails. Next, Jill. I don't know if you can see it very good, but this is a little bit more of a close-up picture um, of a guy that's given a demonstration on it. Actually, he's got a wireless mic in it, or remote in his hand, so uh, that's not authentic. But <laughs> the, um, you can see there, it was a, a small whip, okay? Uh, not very big at all. Uh, not like a big bull whip that we think of in regards to a whip. Okay, you can, uh, next slide, last one here. This is a kind of a close-up of what the tips of those ends would look like. And actually, if you go online, uh, you can, the guy that uh, makes these and replicates them, a historian, did a lot of research and put in these together. He actually has online demonstrations of what this could do. Uh, to, uh, he uses cardboard boxes and plastic sheeting and, and that kind of stuff. Um, it was quite gruesome. Okay? Some historians believe that scourging, excuse me, that scourging was always used as a preliminary stage for those sentenced to execution by crucifixion. Like that was just part of, you've been ex sentenced to crucifixion, you're going to be scourged, and then you're going to be crucified. Uh, whether or not that was true of all cruci crucifixion is, is unclear. We do know that that is what happened, and that is what was done to Jesus. During a scourging, the prisoner would be stripped of their clothing so that their back and legs could be exposed for beating. And they would then have uh, their hands tied or bound uh, to some sort of pillar or a whipping post. With their hands either uh, wrapped around the post or held up high on the pillar, they had no means of self-defense, no means, means of, of being able to try and dodge uh, the strikes. The scourging would be done by two Roman soldiers called lictors, whose responsibility included executing the sentences of criminals. And basically, these guys were uh, professional torturers. That's what they did. The two lictors would take turns, one on the right and one on the left, striking the exposed back, shoulders, and legs each time bringing down the full force of their flagrum. And at first, the thongs, uh, they cut through the skin only. But as the blows continued, they would cut deeper into the flesh. And the lead balls that were at the end would produce large, deep bruises within the tissue that would eventually be opened up by the repeated beating. In preparation uh, for this study, I, I read some medical re rep reports uh, done by doctors that uh, gruesomely explain a, a lot more details, and I'm not going to go into all of those details. Uh, I'll spare you those. Uh, but I will tell you of one doctor that described the end state of a body that would be beaten with a Roman flagrum. This is what they said. The skin of the back is hanging in long ribbons, and the entire area is an unrecognizable mass of torn, bleeding tissue. When it is determined by the soldier in charge that the prisoner is near death, it's finally stopped. History actually tells us that many people died from Roman scourging. The, the pain that the body would feel was so much, would simply go into shock and die uh, from the beating, die from loss of blood. The number of blows that Jesus received is not recorded for us in Scripture. Many believe that it may have been up to 39 lashes based upon the Old Testament law in Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 3, that prohibited giving more than 40 lashes. Okay? And the Jewish practice of giving 39 lashes was followed in fear of miscounting or inadvertently striking someone 41 times. Because if you did it 41 times, then you would be getting in trouble. And so they started, we're going to do 39. We'll save that one as a mercy, but also kind of protected them from if they miscounted. Okay? These were not Jewish soldiers, though. Okay? They are Romans. 
And it's highly unlikely that they would follow Jewish traditions based upon Jewish scripture. That Jesus could have been beaten more than 40 times. And he could have been beaten less than 40 times. We don't really know how many times he was beaten. The idea of a scourging being used as an interrogation or to try and get a confession or to try and get someone to plead guilty to what they have done... It would seem Jesus having nothing to be guilty of, nothing to confess, if they continued to beat him to try and get something out of him, they would get nothing. And so it's assumed and presumed that it was many lashes that were struck across the back of our Savior. What we do know about it, we don't know how many, but what we do know is that the Scripture actually testifies to the beating that Jesus received. The prophet Isaiah prophesied of this beating when he said, I gave my back to those who struck me and my cheeks to those who plucked out the beard. I did not hide my face from shame and spitting. Isaiah chapter 50 verse 6. Isaiah also said that he was so badly beaten that he was hardly recognizable as human. Isaiah chapter 52 verse 14 says, As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. The beating made him nearly unrecognizable as a human being. How many lashes would that take? I don't know. A lot, I would think. You know, as we consider some of the details of the scourging, I'm also reminded of something else that Isaiah prophesied. Isaiah said in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 5, he said, He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. Jesus went through the pain of a Roman scourging for our transgressions. He allowed himself to feel the deep bruises caused by the lead at the end of the flagrum for our iniquities. The punishment that he bore was for our peace. The stripes that were caused by the broken glass bones and in the throngs and at the tips of the flagrum are the very stripes that we are healed by. Jesus took this beating for us. Our sins make us guilty and deserving of such treatment. But Christ took the punishment for us. So that we wouldn't have to pay the price ourselves. After Jesus was scourged, he was delivered to the Roman soldiers to be crucified. Let's read verse 27 through 30. It says, Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole garrison around him. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And when they had twisted a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand. And they bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And then they spat on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. When the scourging was complete, they put Jesus' garments back upon him and led him to a place called the Praetorium. Generally speaking, the Praetorium was the place of headquarters in a Roman camp. Like, I know in Okinawa they have a building one. Do they have a building one here? Okay, like building one, like headquarters, right? So that was like the praetorium, okay, the general's tent in a camp. However, it was also used to reference a palace in which a governor or procurator resided. Okay, in Jerusalem, there was a magnificent palace okay, that Herod the Great had built for himself and which the Roman procurators seemed to have occupied whenever they came from Caesarea <coughs> excuse me, to Jerusalem uh, to transact their public business, to be there during the feasts. Uh, and to watch over the crowds. The exact location of the praetorium is actually debated. Okay? Some believe that it was part of Herod's palace, and others believe that it was in a different location amidst the fortress Antonio, uh, or Antonia. Excuse me. Uh, the fortress Antonia served as uh, barracks for the Roman troops, as well as a place of storage uh, for 
the high priest vestments were only let out during the festivals. And so the high priest wasn't allowed to do all of his stuff without uh, the Romans first giving him all of his, his uh, the proper garb, uh, garments and things like that. And only would it be allowed to do it during the festivals. All that stuff was stored there in the Fortress Antonia. Some say that the Roman procurators could have stored at uh, the Fortress Antonia as well, if not in Herod's temple. I did find a few pictures that may help to visualize the two different locations. Uh, the first picture is actually just a drawing of what first century Jerusalem looked like. I don't have a pointer. I don't think I have a pointer. Yeah. But I'll try over here. So this right here would be, you know, you have uh, the temple. This is the temple here. These are the temple grounds. Okay, this right here in the corner was the Fortress Antonia. Actually, oh, thanks, Joe. Good job. Awesome. Up here, this area right here was Herod's palace. Okay, this is uh, obviously the outer wall. Uh, that went around the city here. Okay? And so either the praetorium was here or it was here in the uh, Fortress Antonia. Okay, the next slide. This, this actually is a, uh, a to scale, 50 to 1 scale representation of first century Jerusalem. It's a, a model actually in uh, the uh, Israel Museum. And uh, they have there, you can walk around, so you can kind of see at the top of the picture some people walking um, Here's this lifelike uh, rendition. Again, the Herod's temple, or Herod's temple was this. This is the one he rebuilt, but his palace was back over here. This is the fortress Antonia here. The next picture gives a, a close-up picture of Herod's palace. Uh, from the opposite side, you see the temple in the background there. Uh, and then the next picture is a, uh, more of a closer-up of the temple with the Fortress Antonia on the right-hand side. Uh, so that's a, a scale. You kind of get the idea. It's either in one of those two places. People don't know, actually, when you go there, uh, if you have an opportunity to go there. I talked to some friends that have been there, and they say uh, that they, the tour guides and stuff said that it was in the Fortress Antonia, but a lot of the books and stuff say it was in Herod's Palace, and so there's a lot of debate on where this place was at. As a side note, I'm going to throw this out there. I was actually te texting with Pastor Rick uh, from uh, my pastor uh, from Okinawa, and they are actually planning a trip to Israel this summer. And he wanted to uh, extend an invitation to uh, our church to see if there's anybody in our church that would be willing or interested in going. And so if you are interested, if that's something that perks your interest, you'd like to go to Israel on a trip, come see me during the uh, Potluck Fellowship, and I can give you the details about that. But... That's there in Israel. Today you can go and there's this life-size uh, replica model. Okay? The, excuse me. After leading Jesus into the praetorium, the whole garrison of Roman soldiers surrounded him. The fact that the whole garrison surrounded Jesus leads me to believe that the praetorium was located in the Antonio Fortress where all the troops were positioned. But it doesn't have to be still. But if the entire garrison was there, I would think that that would be where all the troops are at. They could have all been over at Herod's palace, though, too, so it's not a for sure answer. But anyways, they surrounded Jesus, and they then stripped him, and they put a scarlet robe on him, twisted a crown of thorns upon his head, and they gave him a reed in his hand. The stripping of Jesus, uh, again, the stripping of Jesus for the second time, would cause pain. Recall the condition of his back and his backside. Wounds and gashes that were oozing blood and had been covered with a cloth as he was led away from Pontius Pilate. And blood would start to stick to the garment as the open wounds of his back were covered with his own garments. The blood would start to, to thicken up. The blood would start to stick to the cloth. And here they strip off that clothing that was sticking to the wounds, causing, no doubt, more pain as the wounds would again begin to drip flesh, fresh blood. This scarlet robe, the, the thorn crown, and the reed in his hand, they were all placed upon Jesus as a mockery. Kings hold scepters that were glorious and, and ornate with all sorts of jewelry and, and beautiful uh, uh, pieces of, of fine metals okay? as symbols of their power. And Jesus' scepter was a thin, weak 
read. The uh, excuse me. Uh, the specific thorn bushes of the region uh, have long, hard, sharp thorns. And so when placed upon our Lord's head, the thorns would pierce his skin. They would dig into his scalp. Again, there is copious amounts of blood that would start flowing from his head because the scalp is one of the most vascular areas of your entire body. And so as it would be pierced with the thorns, blood would start dripping down his face and his head. Mark identifies the color of the robe as being purple in his gospel. Uh, the word for scarlet and purple in the Greek had been used interchangeably, and so there's no conflict there. Uh, both are used to describe uh, clothing that were usually reserved for the affluent or for royalty. It was a, a color of royalty, uh, purple, dark blue. One commentator I read from suggested that there was an unknown significance to the Romans in their use of this scarlet robe and their crown of thorns. You see, Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18, describes our sins as being like scarlet. And Genesis chapter 3, verse 18, speaks of the punishment for sin upon man being that he, the ground would produce thorns. And thistles. The commentator suggested that these two pieces emphasize Jesus taking the sins of the world upon his body. He said, The Bible describes sin as scarlet, and that thorns first appeared after the fall as a sign of the curse. Thus, the articles that he wore are symbols to show that Jesus took on the sins and the curse of the world upon himself. Whether the Lord intended the Roman soldier's use of the scarlet robe and crown of thorns to be an allusion to this or not is uncertain, but I do think it's quite interesting to consider. After dressing up the Lord, they continued their mockery by bowing their knee before Him, declaring, Hail, King of the Jews! And if that wasn't enough, they then began to spit upon the Lord. And they took the reed that they had placed in his hand and they began beating him once again. Striking him upon the head, driving the thorns of the makeshift crown deeper and deeper into his scalp. And as we read the words, we sometimes fail to see really the depravity of mankind. But, but stop and allow yourself to consider for yourself the actions of these Roman soldiers. A man has been beaten to a bloody pulp. He has barely any strength left in him. He's probably lying in a puddle of his own blood at this time. And you're going to mock him. You're going to tease him. You're going to spit upon him. And you're going to continue to beat him while he is down. I asked myself as I thought of that, what kind of person does that? Where is the compassion of man? Where is the sympathy? Where is the guy that stands up and says, All right, en enough is enough. It's hard to believe sometimes just how desperately wicked mankind truly is. Spurgeon said this, As bad as man is, methinks... And I thought that was funny to but anyways, he, uh, methinks he never was so bad, or rather, his badness never came out to the full so much as when gathering all his spite, his pride, his lust, his desperate defiance, his abominable wickedness into one mouthful, he spat into the face of the Son of God himself. Interestingly, Spurgeon would go on to speak of how it is possible for us to even mock Jesus today by the way that we live our life. He said, You have mocked him by a feigned worship, and thus you have put the purple robe upon him. 
For that purple robe meant that they made him a nominal king, a king who was not in truth a king, but a mere show. Your Sunday religion, which has been forgotten in the week, has been a scepter of reed, a powerless ensign, a mere shame. You have mocked and insulted him even in your hymns and prayers, for your religion is a pretense with no heart in it. You brought him an adoration that was no adoration, a confession that was no confession, and a prayer that was no prayer. Is it not so? He questioned. Those are some harsh words from Spurgeon. I was thinking to myself, I'm kind of glad I didn't go to his church. (laughs) But I wonder if any of them hit home for us. Have we mocked Jesus Christ by the way we live our life? Do we make a mockery of the Lord by the way that we live our life? Does our life really show a true worship of the Lord, or is it a mere show? Do we mock Him all week long and then come into His presence on Sunday and sing empty songs and say empty prayers? I hope not. I hope that doesn't describe anyone here. My hope is that each and every one of you would live lives that are honorable before the Lord. That your love for the Lord would lead you each and every day, every day, not just Sundays or days when you're in front of other people. Let's continue in our study. Let's look at verse 31. It says, And when they had mocked him, they took the robe off him, put his own clothes on him, and led him away to be crucified. Now as they came out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name, him they compelled to bear his cross. When the Roman soldiers were done having their sadistic fun, they took the scarlet robe off of him, They dressed him back in his clothes and led him away to be crucified. And something noteworthy happens. As they exited the praetorium, they found a man to bear Jesus' cross for him. (coughs) Excuse me. The normal procedure for crucifixion was that the sentenced prisoners needed to carry their own uh, cross to the place of execution. Okay. The march from the praetorium to the place of, ex, uh, of execution was useful advertising for Rome. Okay. It warned potential troublemakers that this was their fate should they challenge Rome. Usually the prisoners would actually only carry the crossbar. Okay. Uh, for the weight of the whole cross would be upwards to about 300 pounds, some estimate. Studies suggest that the crossbar would be the crossbar would be carried across the soldiers' shoulders, forgive me, as the prisoners were paraded through town. Historians tell of the permanent upright poles that were situated outside of the city walls in Jerusalem that were used for crucifixion by the Romans. And so the upright poles would already be out there and they would carry the crossbeam from the praetorium down to outside of the city walls to the place of execution. Although we're not told why in in any of the Gospels, most assume that Jesus was so weak from the beatings by this time that he was physically unable to carry his cross. And that is why the Roman soldiers found someone to bear his cross for him. Keep in mind that it is a Jewish holiday, right? And they don't want to have, uh, we're going to find out, and many of you already know, they're going to want to make this a speedy, quick execution, okay? Because they don't want to have the bodies on the cross after nighttime. It was really bad, especially during the Jewish holiday. So they wanted to get there fast, and the idea is Jesus is holding up the line, okay? And they need to get going. He's unable to bear the cross. He's unable to physically walk there and do so. And so the Roman soldiers task someone else to bear his cross. It's interesting, you know, some people talk about just the the picture there of Jesus not carrying the cross because he was not guilty. 
Uh, and I, I can see that, but I also realize that he was guilty of our sins because our sins were placed upon him, and that's why he was crucified. This man that bore Jesus' cross was a man by the name of Simon, and verse 32 tells us he was from Cyrene. Cyrene was a city in upper Libya, uh, North Africa, okay? uh, and is today associated with the current capital of Libya, Tripoli. History tells us that Cyrene actually greatly encouraged Jewish settlement in their land and as a result had a very thriving Jewish community within it. It's believed that this Simon was a native of Cyrene but perhaps of Jewish descent. This, of course, would explain his presence in Jerusalem during the Holy Feast of Passover. Not many other details are given about this man, but Mark does give us something interesting. Some interesting information. Mark and his mention of Simon give a side uh, to us, the reader, that he was the father of Alexander and Ruth. And that's interesting because, uh, well, we'll see why. Some speculate as to why Mark would throw that information in. Why would he say, yes, Simon uh, from Cyrene, by the way, he's the father of Rufus and Alexander. Okay. One suggestion I think that merits consideration is that Alexander and Rufus were well-known people to the intended audience. Okay. Mark wrote his gospel from the city of Rome. Okay. And so it is assumed that his general or his main audience would be the Roman church. That makes sense, right? Following so far. Interestingly, at the end of the book of Romans, Rufus's name comes up again. Romans chapter 16, verse 13 reads, Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and his mother and mine. And it would seem, based upon Paul's greeting of Rufus, that he was a prominent member within the Roman church, not only him, but his mother as well. And if this indeed is the same Rufus... It's the only mention of the name in the Bible. It's mentioned twice in those two contexts, in the book of Mark, and again at the end of the book of Romans. We can't prove that it's the same person, but I think it's highly likely. It would seem that this random man that was picked out of the crowd to carry the cross of Christ found a new life in Christ. And he shared it with his family. Of course, this shouldn't surprise us that Simon became a follower of Jesus Christ because Jesus said in Matthew chapter 16, verse 24 and 25, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Simon the Cyrene literally picked up a cross. And followed Jesus to the place of his execution. And he found new life. When Jesus exhorted his disciples to take up their cross and follow him, I believe that the picture of crucifixion was what they thought of. When he said, take up your cross, they thought of crucifixion. Today, I, I believe we've marginalized the cross. And we say the, the cross means different things to different people. And it just means going through tough times. And it's my cross to bear, so to say. I believe we've lost a, a little bit of the shock value of what Jesus was saying when he said to pick up your cross. David Guzik, a favorite commentator of mine, Bible teacher, he writes, Taking up your cross wasn't a journey. It was a one-way trip. There was no return ticketing. It was never a round trip. You see, the cross led to one thing, and one thing only, death. Jesus was calling his disciples to die to self and to courageously follow after Jesus wherever he may lead. Does that describe your life? 
Are you dying to self and courageously following after Jesus wherever he may lead? As I was studying and and thinking of this point, I was reminded of an old hymn, which is interesting because I didn't go to church uh, until I was an adult. I don't know a lot of old hymns, but this hymn came into my head. It's the old hymn entitled, I Have Decided to Follow Jesus. I won't try and sing it, but I'll tell you the lyrics to it. Okay, It says, uh, I have decided to follow Jesus. It repeats it three times. I've decided to follow Jesus. I've decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. The world behind me, the cross before me. No turning back. No turning back. Though none go with me, still I will follow. No turning back. No turning back. Picking up your cross means there's no turning back. You're completely surrendered to following the Lord and living for Him and going wherever He says to go and doing whatever He says to do. There's no turning back. It was, it's a one-way ticket to wherever Christ would lead. Verse 33, it says, And when they had come to a place called Golgotha, that that is to say, a place of a skull, they gave him sour wine mingled with gall to drink. But when he had tasted it, he would not drink. The place of Jesus' crucifixion is actually debated today as well. If you ever go to Jerusalem, you'll see uh, that there are two different locations that are reported uh, to be this place called Golgotha. Uh, If you guys are interested, Golgotha in uh, uh, in, uh, is uh, the place of a skull, translated the place of a skull. Uh, the church's name Calvary is Latin for the same word. Okay? Here, uh, Matthew says that Golgotha means place of the skull. And if you were to go to Jerusalem today, one of the sites looks like a place of the skull, while the other has, seems to have no connection whatsoever to a skull. Um, Joe, I have a picture again, I think. Okay, it's hard to see a little bit, but in the bottom right-hand side, uh, this is a, a hillside. Actually, right in front of this is a parking lot. It's a bus stop. Okay, um, but you can... Oh, yeah, very good. You found it. Okay, the next picture is kind of a zoomed-in portion of it. In the side of the hill there, you can kind of see the two eyes and a, and a nose. It would kind of be uh, through erosion through the, the years. It's lost a little bit of its depth, but you can kind of see... Uh, what would look like a skull. And so the, the name Golgotha, place of the skull, would, would make sense. Uh, the, the other place, okay, this actually, this place is not the traditional site of the crucifixion. Uh, the traditional site of the crucifixion, the Roman Catholic Church has built the Church of the Holy Sepulchre on uh, that site of the traditional place of Jesus' crucifixion. Uh, but there isn't anything there that looks like a, a place of a skull or anything there in the, in the terrain that would suggest that it's there. Uh, a lot of people are starting to switch their uh, ideas. And uh, the hillside with the skull in it, it's called Gordon's Calvary. And uh, a lot of people are starting to think that's probably more than likely the, the real place where he was crucified. But there's a big, huge church there, and it's been there for a long time. I don't think it'll ever change, but... Just to so you guys know, a little side information. Gets you excited about You want to go? Come see me. All right. Um, when Jesus arrived to Golgotha, he was offered sour wine mingled with gall to drink. Okay? But he would not take it. Gall and sour wine was a mixture that was believed to contain narcotics to deaden pain. Why this was offered to Jesus is not explicitly told to us. Some suggest it was a sign of mercy. But as I look at what has been building up and what has been going on, that would seem to be contrary to everything that's led up to this point. If anything, I think that it was not given as a sign of mercy, but rather to deaden his senses long enough so that he wouldn't die before having the chance to even be crucified. Jesus did not take the drink, though. Choosing instead to take the full awareness of all the pain and the suffering with all of his senses fully functioning. 
Verse 35 through 37, we'll wrap it up. Say, then, the crucified, then they crucified him. So matter of fact. And they divided his garments, casting lots that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet. They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Sitting down, they kept watch over him there, and they put up over his head the accusation written against him. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Just as it was uh, with scourging, Matthew records this crucifixion, so very matter of fact. Uh, he doesn't go into the description of what was involved. And so uh, I do want to take real quick, uh, a quick look at the crucifixion and what that involved. And we're going to be looking at the crucifixion for the next couple of weeks. Uh, so we won't get into all the details of it. <coughs> crucifixion was invented by the Persians about three to 400 years before Christ uh, was even born. It was perfected, though, by the Romans. In the first century, uh, they had perfected it. It is arguably the most painful death ever invented by man and is where we get our term excruciating. When you say something is excruciating, that literally means out of the cross. Excruciating. My research, uh, I was doing, looking at a couple different websites. Blue Letter Bible is a good one if you guys want to check out. Blue Letter Bible has got some good research. There's a report by Dr. David Terasaka uh, uh, in regards to the process of crucifixion. And this is what he had to say about uh, the process. He says, The procedure of crucifixion may be summarized as follows. The cross beam was put on the ground and the victim laid upon it. Nails about seven inches long and with a diameter of one centimeter were driven in the wrist. A lot of times we, we, we think of the hands, but... Um, crucifixion would go through the wrist. The points would go into the vicinity of the median nerve, causing shocks of pain to radiate through the arms. It was possible to place the nails between the bones so that no fracture or broken bones would occur between the radial and ulna bone, I believe is what the two names of the bones are between in your forearm and your wrist. Studies have shown that nails were probably driven through the small bones uh, of the wrist as well, uh, since nails in the palms of the hand would not support the weight of a body. Okay. Uh, in ancient terminology, the wrist was considered to be part of the hand, and so when it was talk about the wrist or the hand, and we'd say, oh, synonymous, you know, here to here, we're still talking about the same area. Uh, Standing at the crucifixion sites would be these upright posts called stipes, standing about seven feet high. The cross beam was then lifted onto the stipes, and the feet were then nailed to the stipes. To allow for this, the knees had to be bent and rotated laterally, being left in a very uncomfortable position. The sign stating the reason for the crucifixion would then be hung above the victim's head, as we read of in verse 37. Another report by Dr. Mark Eastman from the Koinia House was uh, very telling. It spoke of how the resulting position on the cross sets up a, a horrific sequence of events, events which results in a slow, painful death. Having been pinned to the cross, the victim now has an impossible position to maintain. With the knees flexed at about a 45 degrees, the victim must bear his weight with the muscles of his thighs. However, this is an almost impossible task to try and stand uh, for hours on end with your legs at a 45 degree angle. You go ahead and give it a try and, and you probably won't in light last, maybe five minutes. You know, I think some of you guys are probably pretty fit, but definitely not hours. As the strength of the legs gives out, the weight of the body must now be borne by the arms and the shoulders. The result is that within a few minutes of being placed on the cross, the shoulders will become dislocated. Minutes later, the elbows and the wrist would be dislocated. The result of these dislocations, they say, is that arms could be uh, as much as six inches longer than normal because of being stretched out and pulled out of their sockets. With the arms dislocated, considerable body weight is now transferred to the chest 
causing the ribcage to be elevated in a state of perpetual inhalation. And consequently, in order to exhale, the victim must push down on his feet to allow the rib muscles to relax. The problem is that the victim cannot push very long because the legs are extremely fatigued. And so as time goes on, the victim is less and less able to bear weight on the legs, causing further dislocation of the arms and further raising of the chest wall, making breathing more and more difficult. According to the report, it said the result of this process is a series of catastrophic physiological effects. Because the victim cannot maintain adequate ventilation of the lungs, the blood oxygen level begins to diminish and the blood carbon dioxide, the CO2 level, begins to rise. This rising CO2 level stimulates the heart to beat faster. In order to increase the delivery of oxygen and the removal of the carbon dioxide. However, because he's pinned, the victim and the limitations of oxygen, he can't deliver the oxygen that's needed. The victim cannot deliver more oxygen and the rising heart rate only increases oxygen demand. So this process, it sets up this vicious cycle of increasing oxygen demand, which can followed by an ever-increasing heart. The heart saying, I need more oxygen, so it starts beating faster. The body saying, I can't give you any more oxygen. Kind of stuck in two places. Needing more oxygen. Needing relief. Needing so much. After several hours, the heart begins to fail. The lungs collapse and they fill up with fluid, which further decreases oxygen delivery to the tissues and the blood loss and hyperventilation combines to cause severe dehydration. That's why he would say, I thirst from the cross. Over a period of several hours, the combination of collapsing lungs, a failing heart, dehydration, and the inability to get adequate oxygen supplies to the tissues cause the eventual death of the victim. The victim, in effect, cannot breathe properly and slowly suffocates to death. And in some cases of severe cardiac stress, such as crucifixion, a victim's heart can even burst. This is what Jesus Christ is about to endure for us. You know what's amazing? The scripture says that he did so willingly. Jesus said in the book of John that no one takes his life from him, but that he lays it down himself. He had the power to lay it down, and he had the power to take it up again. No one took his life. He willingly laid it down. The scriptures also tell us that it was for the joy that was set before him that he endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Do you know what? You and I were the joy that was set before him. The joy of knowing that through his sacrifice, reconciliation with God would be made available to all through faith in his completed work. Today, we're going to partake of communion and we're going to remember that completed work. And so I'd like to invite the ushers to get the communion elements ready at this time. Nick and the team are going to come up and, and lead us in worship. But I, I was... I just thought to myself, Lord, you're so good. You know, we, we do communion one, the first Sunday of the month. Usually it's just kind of tradition. And here we are talking about the broken body of Jesus Christ, and uh, we have opportunity to take communion. And, and communion is, um, as Jesus would institute communion, uh, uh, institute the Last Supper, uh, the, uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, it says that uh, Paul writes, but he speaks of that night, <coughs> says... <coughs> For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread. 
And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat. This is my body which is broken for you. As I thought of that, take, eat. This is my body that was broken for you. Today we had an opportunity to look into and try to grasp and understand just what that broken body was. And so when we partake of the bread, we remember that body that was broken for us. And he says, In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. The blood that was shed on that day upon the floor of the praetorium, uh, there before Pilate's presence, and there upon the cross, the blood flowed. And, and that blood, it's a picture of a new covenant. A covenant of grace. Okay? No longer sacrifices of animals, lambs and bulls, but the sacrifice of the Son of God. That through faith in that completed work, we can have forgiveness. We can have our sins washed. Though we were as scarlet, they could be made white as snow. And so what I want to do today, the ushers, they're passing out the elements. I want you guys to partake on your own. Okay? I'm not going to come back up. I'm not going to lead you in a prayer of any kind. We're going to worship the Lord. And as we do, Worship the Lord. Remember His body that was broken for you. Remember the blood that flowed. Remember and be thankful and find yourself in a place of worship again, realizing the great gift and the treasure that's been given to us. At the end, Nick will close us off in prayer and we'll be done for today. And so I want to encourage you just worship the Lord. And, uh, Remember his body and remember his blood. And, and as you feel led, you partake of the bread and you partake of the cup uh, on your own. If you want to do it together, you're with your couples, uh, your spouse, and you want to pray together, feel free to do that. But uh, let's make this a time of intimate worship with the Lord. Amen.
sweet the sound Amazing love Now flowing down Through hands and feet That were nailed to a tree As grace flows down It covers me It covers me this week, God, may we not forget what you've done, that we were bought at a price, God, and the only reason was so that we could live with you forever. Let us not forget, God, let us glory in that this week. Let's put you first in all that we do. pray this in Jesus' name, amen. If you have not taken the elements yet, uh, now would be a good time to do so. This is concluding our service. Uh, like we've mentioned a couple times, there's a potluck today. So if you can stay, we encourage you to do so. Um, we always have enough food. So if you didn't bring food, don't let that be the reason not to stay in fellowship. Uh, we're going to stack these chairs again. We're only going the first half of the room. So from the door up, push those back, and then all the chairs in the, the family room there. So if you are going to stay, uh, we'd appreciate your help with that. If not, we hope to see you back here next week. Have a wonderful week.